We acknowledge the Huachuk people and the wider Noongar community uh, on whose country uh, we conduct our ceremonies, do our zazen uh, tonight. Uh, may our words and actions be informed by the Buddha. This is a talk in the series on Zen and the Passions. Uh, it's on shame. Uh, please sit comfortably. Uh, <laughs> it seems um, on the first night of spring um, to be doing a talk on shame seems uh, curiously uh, <coughs> at odds. Um, I was talking to my granddaughter Charlotte the other day and talking about how poets have used nature to convey uh, human emotion uh, uh, throughout history. And uh, so, you know, she was saying, oh, so when the clouds are dark, the poem is sad. Yes, yes. She said, but you can be, also be sad in spring. Um, I thought, yeah, actually it's particularly poignant, uh, the sadness of spring. Maybe even the shame of spring can inhabit there for just a little. Uh, Chaucho said, the passions are enlightenment. So when you're in the extremes of passion, uh, when your gaze is blooded, when you're beside yourself in rage, uh, when we are head down in shame, uh, who are we? Uh, truly. Woman wrote, if you want to know true gold, you must discern it in the midst of fire. We awaken ourselves and others in the midst of the passions and the suffering of the world. This is what makes the lay path great. I'm not saying that monasteries are without passion, but... Um, we live the challenges of day life, of relationship, of all that complexity, uh, and it's magnificent uh, for awakening. Truly, serenity is overrated. Although it's nice to sit and feel uh, samadhi, uh, oneness uh, with where you are. What is shame? Uh, what is, yeah. In his history of human uh, history of emotion, Richard Firth, God be here, which is the most amazing name for an author uh, writing a book on uh, emotions. Uh, he writes, shame is a social emotion that lets us know we've crossed a moral boundary. So you tell a lie and you are found out. Uh, you are shamed and you feel shame. Just like that. Crossing a moral uh, boundary. Uh, Owen uh, Flanagan uh, 
who uh, figured in the, an amazing minefield program recently with um, Waleed Ali and Scott Stevens. He was a guest. And, uh, it's a fantastic program. It's come for a fortnight ago. Well worth following up on shame. But uh, he writes, Shame's proper function is to mark values of importance and communicate social disapproval for being careless with those values. In its ideal form, shame marks and prohibits violations of norms that a good community endorses. Well, it begs a lot of questions, but that's another angle on shame as a social emotion. Surely we recognise the marks of shame. Head down, eyes averted, face hidden, uh, someone blushing. We recognise it through expressions such as uh, losing face. And the, the Minefield program had uh, the image of a... Um, uh, there was no face, uh, but just a person, just no face at all, so the loss of face can go with shame. Shame is also belittlement. Um, my mother used to say, I felt as big as sixpence. Uh, shame can be obliterating, uh, as when the shamed person says, I could have died. And with internet bullying and shaming, young people tragically uh, do kill themselves. The traditional means of public shaming uh, the stocks, tarring and feathering, being sent to Coventry. Uh, these days, public shaming, uh, often through the internet, fat shaming, slut shaming, the spreading of gossip, gossip, which makes a person feel alone, fearful, paranoid. Many forms uh, of shaming. Abraham Lincoln is supposed to have written, Nearly all people can stand adversity, but if you want to test a person's character, give them power. With power may come overweening pride, even hubris. This is nowhere so apparent as in some of the presidents and prime ministers we've had in the Anglosphere in recent years. Pride has a fall, and that fall can be into obliterating shame and humiliation. Uh, culture, in many ways, seems to change. I mean, this would be kind of so taken for granted, maybe in the 1960s, 1970s, but these days, it's, I'm not sure that pride always has a fall uh, and into obliterating shame and humiliation. Yeah. So shame has a social act, uh, aspect of, in this kind of way. Um, there's also what's called a, a self-discrepancy theory um, developed by someone called Edward Torrey Higgins. And it goes, self-discrepancy theory claims that we all have an internalised ideal self 
whereby we might see ourselves as moral, intelligent and upstanding. But there are always gaps between our ideal self and our actual self. I worry about all this multiplication of different kinds of self in the field of no self, but here we go. So many forms of self, at least two here. Um, when these gaps open up uh, between ideal and actual, um, we experience shame. Uh, we feel that we have let ourselves down. Certainly we feel shame when we fail to live up to our ideals. We also experience shame when we fail to live up to the ideals or standards of the communities in which we live to bring those two things together. So what is the inner experience of shame? Well, in my own experience, fiercely unpleasant, and I think that's pretty general for, for people, for everyone. When, for instance, I feel that, that others have discovered my secrets, when I discover that my private life has been made public, that brings deep shame. It's almost like brushing in your own presence. Um, yeah, I feel sick with apprehension. I can feel lonely and sad. Well, one of the features of shame is that sense of isolation that it brings. Uh, within this isolation uh, and the alienation uh, that it occasions uh, comes self-loathing for in some way uh, we take on the contempt of others. We may also be angry if we feel that the shaming has been unjust. So, like this, we rightly in fear. We rightly fear the invasion of shame. Yeah, shame has a whole constellation of emotions like fear, uh, loneliness, um, sadness. Uh, yeah, that sense of being cut off from community. I've got to say, I wanted to talk a little bit about bodhisattvas in the realm of shame. Um, uh, the great Irish playwright uh, Oscar Wilde's friend and former lover Robert Ross stayed in France but returned to London whenever he felt duty called. Oscar Wilde's emotionally trying bankruptcy was one such occasion. Wilde's court appearance in September 1895 culminated in an itemised account of personal expenses throughout his association with his lover, Lord Alfred Douglas. It appeared Wilde had squandered more than £3,500 entertaining his aristocratic friend. Rented vacation homes, trips to Europe and North Africa, gifts of jewellery and the ever-present bottles of vintage champagne at the Café Royale were humiliating reminders of a life led to excess. As Wilde was taken from his hearing, Robert Ross, his friend, who had waited for hours in the corridors of the courthouse, stepped out from the jeering crowd and solemnly tipped his hat to his friend. 
men said wild later have gone to heaven for less so yeah the courage true courage of a bodhisattva there's a wonderful Australian one which I will never forget when Kevin Rudd um, was isolated from uh, the elected members of the Labor Party um, uh, Steve Conroy, I think who was Minister for Communication, said that to get to talk to Kevin Rudd, he had to catch a plane uh, with him. You couldn't get to talk to him otherwise. But it's, this is well-known history. Um, so Rudd was in his office and he had to walk to the party room, uh, knowing uh, full well that this is the end of his prime ministership. And Doug Cameron, uh, I think he was Minister for Housing at the time, joined him saying, uh, no one should have to do this walk alone. Uh, I, I, found, I found that incredibly moving. Uh, and again, full of courage. So he did the walk with Rudd to the party room. I was trying to think of, this is difficult because it should be obvious, but I was trying to think of stories that, uh, of courage in the midst of shame or uh, shaming. And uh, I keep coming up with blanks. So you know, we've got questions. If you've got stories that reflect that, not in the sense of supporting someone else maybe, but, but in, in your own circumstances or finding courage in the midst of shaming. Well, the reflex of shame is shamelessness. So if shame is so obliteratingly awful, well, why don't we get rid of shame? Can we? So, uh, Walid Ali, when he's talking about that, he's very strong on shamelessness. You know, he's saying that a lot of this refined talk about shame is beside the point, because in a society which now, where greed is good, Lust is valorised and lying is, uh, untrammeled lying is taken completely for granted, at least politically, um, or seems to be. Yeah. So how do you see that? The Buddha considered that the shame we feel when we do wrong and our fear of the consequences of our wrongdoing to be essential safeguards against us falling into evil ways. Furthermore, shame and fear were extremely useful on the path of purification. He also recommended that we practice self-assessment or wise reflection on our own actions in relation to others. In Mahayana Buddhism, one of the most common repentance verses used for reflection and indeed for expiation and repentance, is Samantabhadra's repentance verse, which comes from chapter 40 of the Flower Adornment Sutra, uh, which we chant as purification. Uh, All the evil karma ever created by me since of old, on account of my beginningless greed, hatred and ignorance, born of my conduct, speech and thought, I now confess openly and fully.
There's a story uh, from uh, the Dharma, the history of uh, the Zen way, which seems to have its roots in, deeply in shame. And this is the story of the priest Dao Shai, uh, who was an 11th century Linji master uh, and a contemporary of Wutsu. It is said that he suffered from overconfidence as a young monk, but the rebuke of an older colleague changed his attitude completely. Later he stepped down from his position as a master and returned to the life of a monk in training in order to deepen his understanding. He died young at the age of 48 and left no Dharma successors. But what he did leave were three uh, majestic uh, koans uh, which inspire practice uh, to this very day and uh, are paths to awakening. And they are. You make your way through the darkness of abandoned grasses in a single-minded search for your self-nature. He addresses us. Now, honoured one, uh, where is your self-nature? It's like an unfolding sequence. When you have realised your self-nature, you are free of birth and death. When the light of your eyes fails, falls, uh, how are you free? When you are free of birth and death, you know where to go. When your four elements scatter, where do you go? These touch the deepest questions uh, of our lives and uh, wonderful koans to, to sit with. Yep, maybe coming out of uh, the shame of being uh, rebuked by an older monk, then stepping down uh, as a teacher and becoming a student again. Um, uh, in terms of the practice of Zen, it is important that we can turn towards our shame and include it in our awareness. Uh, this is really challenging. I think shame probably is one of the hardest uh, things to be present uh, with. Um, yeah, when we do this, it's against all temptation to turn aside and to turn away. Uh, yeah, what is shame? Well, this is my question. What is the, your experience of shame at a bodily uh, level? You know, often our lives are dictated by something which is happening at a bodily level which we don't notice, but we react uh, out of there. We react out of, with fear and with anger. Uh, we become abusive um, the ability to turn the light back onto what is happening at a bodily level is really really Im important and sometimes we think uh, you know, we realise our activity is being driven by the fact that you know, it hurts but it's a localised pain um, <coughs> usually accompanied by a lot of negative thinking um, but all the same so you know 
lots of pain can be averted, I think, that when we can turn our attention to exactly what is happening and accept that challenge. I want to finish by just briefly looking at um, some comments by Owen Flanagan, who was on that minefield program. Uh, he's a philosopher at Princeton, and uh, he's written a book called um, "Where Are We Here?" How to do things with emotions: the morality of anger and shame across cultures. Um, Shame is well suited to function what he calls horizontally. Um, this is not the kind of shaming that takes place within the, uh, well, uh, yeah, within the hierarchies, uh, say, of a church structure, um, but horizontally in terms of ordinary community he's talking about here. He says, if we conceive of convivial social life as comprising discoveries made over world historical time of practices and prohibitions that typically work for the common good, shame for violations is a perfectly sensible tool to serve such a way of living and being. Shame's proper function is to mark values of importance and communicate social disapproval for being careless with those values. In its ideal form, shame marks and prohibits violations and norms that a good community endorses or would endorse if it were wise, reflective and morally decent. So there's the big philosophical uh, position that he, he puts. It's widely said that shame faces the person, whereas, whereas guilt faces the deeds, the deed. Uh, shame, Flanagan contends, asks a person to change or at least not to enact some habit, tendency, disposition, even a deeply held value commitment if it is wrong or misguided. This is very, it's a great antidote to that uh, popular psychological notion that shame is understood to be a totalizing experience where we see ourselves as a bad person. Now, often when shame and guilt are compared, it's one of those kind of endless kind of um, uh, things on the internet, you know, shame and guilt, envy and jealousy, those kind of things which are regularly confused uh, when they're separated out. People tend to say that... Um, um, yeah, uh, that guilt deals with the deed, whereas um, shame is concerned with feeling that one is obliteratingly bad as a person. But the good thing about Flanagan's position is that it places shame within that social context where by accepting it, um, um, that we can change. It's not kind of final. It's not some kind of wrap-up uh, position. Uh, it's a living, uh, ever-changing thing where we deal, uh, we examine our shame um, and we respond correspondingly. 
um, yeah, sometimes apologising, uh, sometimes, I guess, sitting down to put the other person to talk it over. I don't know. There's myriad ways of doing it. So he says, shame calls on a person to do hard work. Guilt is, or can be, a one-off emotion, and thus a superficial safeguard on one's character, a thin veneer. I do something wrong, I am guilty, you know I did it, I say I'm sorry, we get on with things. Uh, different from shame and his way of seeing things. Uh, exactly. He says the sense of shame applies prospectively as when one sees that some possible action would violate their sense of shame and decides not to do it or does not even feel inclined to do it because it is wrong. So in this way shame functions as a warning signal. Um, it's valuable because it can warn us against a course of action that will result in further and deeper shame for instance. So, what has this got to do with Zen practice? I think it comes down to um, attending uh, to shame, uh, opening to uh, what is there. With in that spirit, um, we don't split, but we include and we allow. Uh, this capacity, I think, grows with years of practice uh, of attending. Through this, uh, we become aware of shame rising in multifarious contexts of our lives. Uh, such attention and awareness can provide us with important guidance as to how we navigate in our complex relations with other people. The practice of attending to our shame can also assist us as we strive to live uh, ethically. The more deeply we allow our shame, the more we realise that it is not other than the genuine face of our true and timeless nature. Even shame is thus. What a shame! 